Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome to Two Guys, One Book again. Uh, happy, uh, I guess, New Year, 2020. First episode of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, good to be back. This took forever to t- for Tim to finish. <laughs> okay, so I was away, you were away. Um, it was like a mutual thing. We both had sure. stuff going on. Okay. It did take me a little time. Yes, but, but we're back. That's all that matters. Um, and we are talking about American War by Omar el Akkad. Brian, uh, I have a question. I can't imagine what this question is going to be. Why what? on earth did you choose <laughs> this book? And it better be a good reason. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I have heard of this book before. I looked at this book before but never bought it, and I found it at a used book sale. Then I bought it then because I got it cheap, but it sat on my shelf for the longest time, like most of my books do. This is a novel, a fiction story about a dystopian about alternate future, well, I hope an alternate future, where the Amer- America is going through a second civil war caused by climate change and America's uh, ban on fossil fuels. It's surprising to me that you found this how to use book. Fair, yes. because it's a relatively new book, right? I, Only a couple years oh, old. Oh, yeah. I think it was 2015 or so. Oh, 2015. Okay. I thought it was maybe even more recent than that. Let me check here. 2017. Yeah. Excuse me. So someone must have really yeah. hated it and just <laughs> had to get rid of it or immediately. Or they read it and were very uh, uh, minimalist in their possessions, and they figured, I'll just don't give the book. Or they out. wanted to get the word out. Yeah. Like, more right. people got to read this. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, and we'll get into everything. Yes, of but, course. Um, so but, tell me more about this book and sure. what it's about. Well, uh, it follows the story of Sarat Chestnut. Sarat. Sarat? Is that how you said In the audio book. In the audio book, it's Sarat. Mm-hmm. Okay. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Her name is Sarah T. Chestnut, but she, she combines the first name with her middle initial to make Sarat. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born in Louisiana with a family, and the Civil War that's going on is between Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and the North. So what year does this take place, oh, roughly? 2090 or so? 20... I thought it was like 2070s or yeah, something. Yeah, it, it, it spans two decades. Okay. Let's be real. Because it starts when Sarah, Sarat is six, and it continues until she's into a, adulthood. Mm-hmm. It's just explaining about the war. First of all, you know, global warming has caused the sea levels to rise. There's a cool map in the start of the book that shows the, the new boundaries of the United States because Florida's all underwater, New York, Boston, LA are all underwater, So the, and Washington, D.C. is too, so the new capital of the United States is Columbus, Ohio. Global warming's rampaging throughout the world. Um, other countries have adjusted to it. America is slow to adjusting to it. They then ban fossil fuels, and the South is like, you won't take our fossil fuels? And then they uh, tried to secede from the Union. That was a very offensive that impersonation. That is very offensive. <laughs> And so, simultaneously, this book goes back and forth between every chapter, tells us a story about Sarah, Surratt's uh, life growing up in the South and her eventual joining the war. And then at the end of the chapter, they show some sort of document or interview, like some historical archive uh, thing that explains what's going on about the Civil War, uh, the Second Civil War. How would you classify this book as a genre? Oh, it's a novel. I mean, but like... Oh, yeah, but like... Oh, but... What oh, kind duh, of duh, duh, genre, yeah. Not, um, uh, dystopian. Yeah. Right? So, dystopian, but also kind of coming-of-age story with Surratt. Yeah. A little bit political, kind of thriller, Very. somewhat. 
historical fiction. There's a bit of a blend of things. Mm-hmm. Not historical, but I mean like future yeah, yeah, yeah. historical yeah, yeah. kind yeah. of. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really liked it. Um, what did you... Did you... You're like, why is Brian read, making me read this? Yeah, I thought... So I'll explain my reasons as we go on, but okay. I thought it was okay. Okay. I'll say the concept was ambitious and pretty creative. I liked the idea behind the book. As far as the execution, the writing itself, the characters, the dialogue, I thought that was more or less average, in my opinion. Okay. And we can go into that oh, more. Oh, sure. But, um, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. yeah. Let's do it. I mean, basically, so to continue with the, her storyline, she grows up in Louisiana, which is not, which is kind of, kind of this gray area. They call it a purple land or some purple area between red and blue. Blue is the north, red is the south. She's in like a refugee camp. Yeah. Well, that's she starts in Louisiana, then yeah. then then her family gets into the refugee camp in the south. The refugee camp is attacked by northerners. That pushes her further into the being empathetic with the southern cause and then joining the southern rebellion and then um, eventually doing some assassinating a, a general of the north and then being de- caught eventually and detained in a in a in a prison of war, uh, uh, and she was tortured and then broken, but then sent and then freed and sent back to live with her brother. Her brother had a nephew, which she didn't want to get close to at first, but then eventually became friends with the nephew who was like six when Sarah Surratt was older. And then Surratt eventually carries out this terrorist attack on the north of taking a virus to the north that spread and killed millions and millions of people while she smuggled her little nephew out of the country. And she smuggled him to New Anchorage, which is up in Alaska, the last neutral area of the United States. So the basic storyline is her kind of, at a young age, growing up and getting radicalized into the cause and then carrying out these attacks um, with, yeah. Yeah, which I thought was an interesting way to unfold the story. Surat, we st- we feel for her as when she's younger, and then going to the refugee camp, and then when she's fighting, we're like we're along with her adventures. We know this disease, this virus, gets unleashed in Columbus towards the end, and all along, we kind of knew. Like, what do you think? Do you know it was gonna be Surat that unleashed the virus, pretty much? Uh, yeah, I guess. So just to take it a step back. Um, like, what did you think about Surat as a character? That's what I was getting at. Is because, yeah. like, all along, she was kind of hard to like at times. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's more or less a bit of the point, though, right? Is that she's getting radicalized. You start out sympathizing with her because she's a kid. You're trying to see things from her perspective. But to me, she was unlikable in general for a lot of the <laughs> novel. Just, like, she's got, like, a tough personality, which I'm sure is a... Mm-hmm an aspect of how she was, the environment that she was brought up in, mm-hmm. so it's hard to blame those conditions on impacting her. Yeah. But, like, in, in a book, you want some likable characters, people to root for. Like, this was just pretty depressing from start to end to me. Oh, really? Like, did you root, like, who did you find likable in this book? The one boy she befriended in the refugee camp that he and his dad then escaped to the north, and then she he became a northern soldier that she ran into later. Yeah, that's, but like that's his minor. He's a pretty character. minor character. Yes, but... I agree. Because um, her brother isn't very likable. His brother's wife, who was his t- caretaker, isn't very likable. The nephew. I mean, to see that's a stit. Like so, you're you put a bigger emphasis on characters, I think, than I do. Okay, here's the thing. Like, 
it's tricky because I don't want to say for something to be good, a good work of fiction, it has to have likable characters. That's kind of a shallow approach. But it like, is. <laughs> no, but let me expand on it, if you'll allow, bro. Uh-huh. What I mean to say is I feel like she's pretty one-dimensional, too, in a lot of ways. There are, like, anti-heroes in works of fiction, and they are, like, characters with a lot of negative personal qualities, but we still find ourselves liking them for a lot of reasons. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that. Yeah. But with her, I just can't find my way into like oh okay see for me i think seeing her go down this um path towards radicalization i felt like the takeaways i mean we're not supposed to like it because it's not pleasant i was more engrossed with other aspects of the story than uh liking the characters i guess that's my bigger point but there was yeah, that's fair. But there's an opportunity for, like, a redemption arc with her. And then when she's, like, she gets out of the prison, and then she, like, unleashes this big virus, and she kills, like, her remaining brother and sister-in-law and that sort of thing. So, like, she did save her nephew, but, I mean, still, like, does she have to take that step? It could have ended a lot on a happier... It doesn't have to have a happy ending, but, like, it could have been a more positive note. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up, because I agree that, like, I felt like that was a little disappointing... The fact that she has this story arc, she gets out of the prison camp, and she has a moment where she can redeem herself. Mm-hmm. Maybe not on a grand scale, but just personally, you know? But she was so hell-bent on revenge that she did unleash the virus. And I, I was hoping, when I was reading all of that later half of the book, I was hoping there would be some sort of twist where... Maybe she hears about them releasing a virus in Columbus and then she sneaks up there to try to stop them but then unwittingly helps them succeed. You know what I mean? Kind of like um, that movie with Arlington Road. Have you ever seen that movie? I've not seen that, no. Well, huge spoiler. Okay. Um, it's like a movie from the I don't get, late 90s, early 2000s or whatever. But like I think, but anyway, Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins, both in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges is a good guy. Tim Robbins is a bad guy. And that's clear the whole movie long. And Jeff Bridges is trying to stop Tim Robbins. Or what is Tim Robbins up to? Like, Tim Robbins is a domestic terrorist of some kind. And Jeff Bridges keeps trying to get to the root of the problem and beat Tim Robbins. But at the end, Jeff Bridges is the vehicle that Tim Robbins uses to unleash his terror. And it's really well done. And I can't, that's the only example I can think of. But, like, other stories where there's a person that. Like, I wanted Surratt to try to make peace or try to do something to save people and then have it go awry. Mm -hmm. But at the end, she's just totally broken, totally, you know, radicalized to the the max. It's a downer. Yeah. But I think the point the author wants us to take away is that, like, the conditions led to the way that she is. Like, if her, as a result of all the war and, like, uh, northern aggression, she's, like, you know, having family members and friends killed... And this sort of thing. And um, that's how she kind of goes down this path and wants to get revenge and, and attack these people in the North. Right. Do you think that was his point of this book? So, do you know the background of the author at all? I know he is Egyptian-Canadian. Okay. And lives in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. Portland yeah. area. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I looked up a couple interviews with him. Um, he's a journalist, mm-hmm. and he's covered a lot of, like, Middle East affairs and that sort of thing. So... He kind of mentioned how, and I'm paraphrasing, but like a rough goal with the book was to help kind of bring the matters closer to home a little bit and help frame things in a perspective that would help us maybe 
understand a little better the nuances of what's going on like in our modern world right and um i know he was saying he knew he would receive a lot of controversy being like middle eastern um by background and writing a book called american war in general i think he did a good job of you know taking on these big topics and trying to like help us see through the eyes of someone who's becoming radicalized and what led them down that path so yeah yeah i I'm, respect and, that yeah and absolutely and i i totally dig that uh that goal that he was trying to do and i feel like he he succeeded because mm-hmm. like that's just it i want Surat to be redeemed and and to have you know peace in the end but she doesn't because she can't because she's been just totally um a victim of the environment her whole life and i feel like Americans do have no actual real realization what it's like to live in the Middle East day to day, and the the stuff they have to put through go, the the stuff they have to live through, is crazy, and I would never wish to live through that some of that stuff, but they still do, and and like that's just it. A lot of them are still great people. Well, this is a creative way I think to help yeah. us get more empathy for people in those conditions. Um, I do feel like he was trying to throw a lot in this novel, like, with, I mean, it's creative, like, the vision of the states in the future and climate change affecting everything, but then to throw on top of that, like, biological warfare, to throw on top of that with the climate change and everything, it felt like he was trying to fit a lot in. Yeah, I guess so. The book is a, you know, average-sized novel, and I feel like he wanted to focus on particular aspects of Surratt's path towards radical radicalization and kind of just instead of her coming out of the prison and like slowly getting back into the the rebel game and fighting against the north he just decided to have this one big thing to show just how much she um hated the north then you know did did you like the historical excerpts at the end of some of the chapters oh i loved them i thought that was cool yeah i this book is right up my alley because it's a dystopian about a future where it could be a reality due to climate change and then throw on top of that uh, like fake historical documents from the future I mean I, that's that's right up my alley as a reader and nerd <laughs> and Brian sympathizes with domestic terrorists <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the big takeaway yeah um, right no but the chapters like I like how it ends with these historical articles because it's like it it adds a layer of like realism to it right how it's like a newspaper covering this event in 2075 or whatever and i think it helped him do world building Mm -hmm. without a lot of exposition and and extra chapters thrown in there you know i it it some may view that as um a shortcut to storytelling but i find it very creative and entertaining and i guess with his journalist background he kind of like caters to that method too that's a good point too yeah I do feel, though, just to go back to the criticism part, because <laughs> you know me, I'm super negative. Yeah. Um, I think this kind of reads like a young adult novel to me at times. Oh. Yeah. Which which I feel like there's a disconnect, because the topics are so heavy, the mm-hmm. subject matter, but then it feels like I was saying some characters are one-dimensional, predictable, kind of simple writing. Yeah. I liked it, though. I read it quick. It was it was an easy read for me. Yeah, it's worth the read. And a yeah. lot of people like this book, so yeah. I don't want to bash it too much. Mm-hmm. But a general point I do want to say is, like, don't you think there are the ratio of depressing futuristic novel, novels to, like, not depressing ones is way out of whack? Like, Well, yeah. Like, I mean, why are like, there no, like, ha- I know every book needs conflict, but, like, 
Nobody's gonna read a book that's all, oh, the future is great, everyone gets along, so, la-di-da. I wanna set, <laughs> I wanna help, you know, create this genre of future, fiction set in the future, but the conflict is not based around future elements. Does that make sense? It's a future setting. So, why would it have to be set in the future then? It would have to be set in the future for some reason, right? Or purpose? Maybe, I feel like someone was mentioning Star Trek as an example. And and, uh. and I didn't haven't watched a lot of it in the past, but like a lot a large point of that was like the future isn't necessarily inherently depressing. There's still conflicts and issues and these things mm -hmm. to sort through, but it's like there are a lot of positive aspects that come with the future as well. Yeah, that's a good example, Star Trek, because it's it's a future where we explore the galaxy, just kind of uh, cataloging and and communicating with the various. Uh, other forms of intelligent life we find in in the universe so um i kind of dig that but you like black mirror right i but do there's no like white mirror out there uh, there's no like a happy version like a comedy there's no like future comedies can you think of one parks and rec so, did oh hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy parks oh parks and rec yeah parks and rec their whole last season was set in the future what yeah really? But not like future, future. Yeah, you're, it, it you're was. Thinking of a different show. No, no, no. I'm. I'm pretty Amy sure. Amy Poehler. Yes, Parks and Recreation. What year? The, that's just it. The show ended like five years ago, right? And they set their last season five years in the future, <laughs> or something. Or maybe <laughs> Which was, it was a their major time maybe, jump. Maybe it was their season fin series finale. Kind of like future, like a hundred years. But no, <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> five years. That's God. the first one that come to mind. Okay. So like, but you're right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like Futurama. Yeah, Futurama. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think Parks and Rec was a good one because they were in the near future. They had drones delivering packages. They had little hologram phones or whatever. They talked about Parks and Rec. Yeah. I don't remember this at oh all. Oh my goodness. This was like when they had. Um, who was Rob Lowe on the show and stuff? Yeah, like it they was, had holograms. Like the all right, it might have been just the series finale, but they were <laughs> definitely yes had a drone delivered packages, and then Ron yeah. shot it. Ron Swanson shot it with a shotgun. Okay, see that I believe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that I mean Amazon is doing that now. With, I yeah. I know. So they're not they weren't too far off. Well, this, but yeah. um, there would have to be some aspect of the story that you would. Would require to, to for it to be set in the future, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, like we could have a normal fiction conflict, like a mystery, and it could be set in the future. But it could have the conflict doesn't inherently have to do with anything uh, about the future technology. Interesting. Which I know they people would be like, "Why'd you set it in the future?" Yeah, then? but it's like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to make a point. Like, what? well, but you see, I think after trying to figure out why you would want something like that set in the futures it my reaction to that to your comment would be the whole point of art and writing stories is to speculate about what ifs and no one's going to say like what if self-driving cars worked perfectly and no one ever died you know that doesn't make for a good story because you like you said what at the start was like all stories need conflict. What if there's a murder mystery and there's self-driving cars? Ooh, like these things don't go. have to be necessarily. Yeah. I think that's a good one. Cool. Yeah, but like I I just feel like naturally when we when people come up with a story idea for the future, it, it just gravitates more towards how the future technology or future self 
world can be messed up. So you like the movie, and did you read the book The Martian? Yes. Okay, I haven't read the book. I like the movie, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something that's set in the future, mm-hmm. and there's an issue, he gets, you know, stuck on Mars or right. whatever, but then they, spoiler, bring yeah. it back. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, like, there's a future element to it, but it's ultimately so, positive. So, basically, Tim, you should just read sci-fi, right? Why? Because that's what all sci-fi is, right? Is It's set in some sort of future or outer space where... It's not so much the technology's evil, it's like something else is going wrong. It's hard to generalize. Like, people would classify this as sci-fi. True. That's a good point. Dystopian uh, sci-fi. Yeah. There's no utopian sci-fi. Is there utopian sci-fi? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think How I about a book... Okay, I know this is my last tangent. But okay. like A book set in the future that's like utopian, and people are so bored because everything's perfect and there's no conflict, so they have to invent their own conflict. And then, so that's uh, a, a futuristic Seinfeld? Is that like Clockwork Orange or something? Uh, I don't know. Seinfeld. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. everything's perfect, then it's a show about nothing. Show about just... nothing. Yeah, show about nothing. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I like that. So to get back to the book... Yeah, about this book... Um, what I noticed throughout the book was that it was broken into different segments of Surat's life. Mm-hmm. When she was six, like 13, eight, like 17, and then like after prison, like when she was in her 20s or almost 30. Mm-hmm. And I felt like when she was six and in Louisiana, and then leading up to 13 in the, in the refugee camp, that was when he did a lot of the world building and the documents at the end of the chapters explained about the Second Civil War, which I really liked. And then after the, then I agree, after the refugee camp, it kind of dra- dragged on a little bit. A little, like, Surratt's older now, and I didn't really find that middle third to be as engaging. And at the end, when she, the prison, when she was tortured, I felt like that was, he had some very, um, you know, kind of raw and emotional descriptions of her torture. Do you think that he was trying to parallel, like, Guantanamo Bay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, there was, like, a hunger strike. Yeah. There was waterboarding. Mm-hmm. All these parallels. Yeah. And, yeah, he, he explains a little bit about waterboarding, or explains, like, her experience of it, and it just sounds awful. And the, the prison is, like, in Florida, quote, air quotes around Florida, because Florida's all underwater except for, like, one island, mm-hmm. and that's where this facility is located. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, he was paralleling Guantanamo. I think he did a good job, and I felt like that was compelling. And then after she got out of prison, I was hoping finally maybe she would, you know, redeem herself. But ultimately, she does not. So again, like I love the book not because of Surat, but because the world he created in the first third, and then just the the message that people can go through some serious difficulties in their life, and then they turn down a path that is not pleasant and um, that can happen anywhere. Yeah. Wow. Well, just to go back to that uh, chapter where she's like being tortured and stuff, mm-hmm. I think that's really important because she ends up confessing to all this stuff that she didn't even do. Even though she did bad things, like the truth eventually got mixed in with all these falsehoods because she's just trying to escape getting tortured because it's so terrible. Why was this ever an approach to get information? Oh, absolutely. It's really just getting confessions to things people probably didn't even do just because they're trying to end this unpleasantness. Right. right. And that's what the book, that's why she gets out of prison is because her mentor, Gaines, mm-hmm. is the one that got caught first. 
and they tortured him, and so that basically they arrested Surratt because of Gaines, and then they realized that the information they got from Gaines was why he was under duress and may not be reliable, but they still, so after they tortured Surratt and got information from her, they realized, oh shoot, like she might not really have committed all this stuff. So Albert Gaines is a pretty important character. Yeah. I'm curious kind of what you thought about him, because to me he's like, he's one of the characters who had more like nuances to them in the book. Mm -hmm. He's sort of doing all these favors for her at the beginning, but trying to earn her trust mm -hmm. little by little so that she he can like radicalize her right. later on, right? Right. I thought like there was a really good part because he has access to the refugee camp where she's staying when she was 13. Uh, they can be, become friends and he tells her about the world at large. And one thing I thought was interesting was like all the Middle East and North African Muslim countries kind of banded together to form a new empire in this world, which I thought was curious. And instead of, in Saudi Arabia, instead of oil, they, in the desert they have banks and banks of solar panels, so they can have a bunch of energy that way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Gaines befriends Surat and then slowly works on radicalizing her, and then when the northern militia attacks the refugee camp, it's pretty much, he knows that he's got her. And, and he is, he's apparently, he's an older gentleman in the book, but he served in wars in the Middle East uh, in the American military, and he has this friend who's Middle Eastern who brings some supplies and whatnot. So, yeah, he was a very interesting character. I mean, like, we definitely don't like him, you know, because we can see how he's manipulative. He's brainwashing her but yeah. with these acts of, like, you know, here's this reward for doing this thing for me, mm -hmm. and just it's just like a slow process of earning her trust, manipulating her over time so that she will yeah. do what he wants her to do. Um, but yeah, the friend that he had, the guy from the Middle East, I thought was interesting later on in the book too, that he's the one who kind of gives Surat that like disease material, whatever, mm -hmm. so that she virus. can, the virus yeah. that she can spread. And his reasoning was like, we're this great empire now. So to stay great, we want other empires, uh, to not be great. So it's like sabotaging this, the, the reunification of the North and the South mm -hmm. and just trying to like cause chaos in other parts of the world, which maybe you could like see parallels today in today's world like just yeah. uh certain countries causing issues in other countries maybe what? just <laughs> what do you mean tim it, it could be anyone uh-huh <laughs> um, so we don't support uh violence at all no of course not no but, but like yes i found that very interesting the middle east gentleman was the instigator of the virus that uh surat unleashed on the north because he wanted to prevent the u.s from reunifying like you said and it was um the author did a very good job of thinking about all the little things he could include in here to to reverse the the narrative and have it have the United States be the the area of the world that's in upheaval and going through constant civil wars instead of the Middle East. Yeah, definitely a creative way to look at how conflict can arise right. and the different angles that it can take. Um, so I give him credit for just his creativity. Did you have any notes or any quotes or anything? Um, I didn't really have quotes from this one, no? but I'll let you read some off. Yes, I will. How many because you got? Just... I got three. Okay, oh, relax. <laughs> right, I know. I, I definitely, know I, I definitely find. All right, let me ask you this question. Yeah. Between reading fiction and nonfiction, which one do you notice yourself writing down or wanting to remember more quotes? That's a great question. I think. Um, with fiction, I'm a little hesitant to stop and select something and save it because I feel like it kind of takes away from the moment of being engaged in the book. Ooh. I feel like wow. that's 
Maybe I'm just making an excuse to yeah, not do it. Yeah, I mean, you're... But, yeah. <laughs> hey, Tim likes to be engaged. Like, read, <laughs> right. like, he listens. He just sits there in, the, in his dark bedroom with his eyes closed and just fully, fully lets the story envelop him. That's such a creepy voice, Brian. <laughs> I know, like, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the image I have I now. I never sound like that. Okay. <laughs> Let me expand upon that. So you just don't you you're in a flow. You're listening on your audible book. You're just going. Along. Also with nonfiction, it's uh-huh. like you're usually reading that for a purpose. Like we're reading this book about X to learn more about Y or whatever. Or X, Z, <laughs> and then there's another variable. I was never good at math. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I don't know. You know yeah, what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah, I, I I understand reading. what you're saying. With nonfiction books, there is more. All right, let me let me start with fiction. With fiction books, the the sole purpose of reading a fiction book is entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. That is why most... Well, all right, all right. So for most people, let me say that. For most people, reading fiction is purely for entertainment. That is why, you know, John Grisham or Nicholas Sparks, that's why those guys are so popular because the, 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 their stories are entertaining. People want to... Wanna, it's escapism. They want to read a story that is nice. Oh, there's a little conflict, a little heartbreak, but then, you know, everything works out <laughs> in the end. You know, I'm thinking of Nicholas Sparks. You're really hating on the... I am. They have a big I'm, not, I'm not hating on them. I'm just saying that, like, there's nothing wrong with reading for whatever purpose you want to read for. Mm-hmm. I just think the majority of people who read fiction solely are just reading it to, for a nice story. And there's nothing wrong with that. But... I think you're also right. To read nonfiction, there is there is something, some other motivating factor of why you're picking up that nonfiction book. It's more than just for storytelling. The author may be a good storyteller in the way they express their topic or, or their life story or whatever they're talking about, but nonfiction, I think, does inherently have other motives behind the reading, mm-hmm. which is good, which I agree. I definitely underline and, and highlight more quotes in nonfiction books. And if an author is too explicit in a fiction book about what they're trying to communicate, yeah. then it can be unsettling, I guess, because you don't want the message to be too direct. Like, if it's a good message, it's kind of so interwoven in the story that you just, it, like, sinks in, you know? Hmm. It's not too, I'm trying to think of the right word, but, like, in your face. It's not too explicit. Explicit, yeah. yeah. So, like, so this book, he didn't have to say, like, Look out, America! This can what's happening in the Middle East can happen to you because he's, of his story he wrote. I mean, is that what you're trying to say? Um, maybe not. No, I mean, what do you think? Do you think he was too explicit or not? Oh explicit? no, I don't. It's pretty obvious. Yes, his yeah. message he was sending, but I don't think there was anything wrong with that. Do you feel like he was a little too, if, like philosophically, like a fiction author trying to get a message across, obvious versus non-obvious? What do you think is better? Ooh, that's a good question. I can go either way. Because if it's obvious, then then clearly, you know, there's no argument about There's no gray area. When it's not obvious, then you get people who are like, oh, well, you know, this and this and happen in the story is really a parallel for like this. podcasters yeah. talking about this. <laughs> right. It's terrible, yeah. I know. Was... Anyway, so, like, if it's obvious, then it doesn't leave it open to interpretation, which I kind of like because I also interpret, you know, leaving it, that's why you love young adult novels, Brian. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But no, I think I'm gonna surprise you though, because like, I think I, I don't know. If it's not as obvious, if there's room for interpretation, then the reader can take from it whatever they want. Mm-hmm. 
And that's that, but that's hard in today's society because we always want to have like there's always people there's more than enough people out there willing to give you their opinion about what it's really about, you know. Mm-hmm. And like the ending of Inception, do you remember that movie? Don't you think? Okay, so a little ambiguity in fiction is mm-hmm. uncomfortable because it's not clear. But don't you think it's kind of healthy and sparks a debate and that sort of thing? I guess. So you're on the side of less obvious. I would prefer less obvious, but not too far that, uh-huh. you know, some authors, I think, lean too hard into that, and it's too unclear what they're trying to say, and uh-huh. then it just becomes kind of a mess to unravel, and maybe it's a little pretentious on their part to think they can... Just by creating something unclear doesn't mean it's, like, high-minded. Right. Agreed. Yeah. Kind of like The Lighthouse, right? <laughs> that movie we saw, well-acted, but, like, kind of a... What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes down to an argument of like, is it lazy storytelling or lazy reading? Like, where does the responsibility lie on making something obvious versus open to interpretation? I know it's kind of like a mix between reader and storyteller, right? Yeah, yeah. Man. Super deep stuff. It is. I didn't know we were getting (laughs) this debate over this book. But, I mean, I don't mind an obvious message like this one. I don't mind it I I don't mean to say that just because an author's intent is clear, Uh it means that it's bad. I'm just saying sometimes I like books that aren't always one-size-fits-all right. clear what they're getting at. If an author meant for one thing and the reader takes something else completely separate from what the author intended, that's fine. Okay, so when you read books for school growing up, yeah. did you ever, and I don't know if this is like before your time, um, or afterward, but like, did you ever get in like Spark Notes or Cliff's Notes or try Not to find really. a... Okay. Not really. Yeah. When I was in high school, the internet was still dial-up. So anyway, I feel like a lot of kids or students will use this in elementary high, or high school because, like, probably it's a little bit lazy. And some mm-hmm. teachers said, like, you don't want to do this too much because they kind of do your thinking for you. They kind of arrive at these conclusions and interpretations without your mind, like, doing the exercise of getting there. Like, oh, this is what the author was meaning by that, what, he's, what he or she's getting at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I bring that up because, like, Something I've been doing recently is listening to interviews with the author on like a podcast or on YouTube after I read a book because I like to understand more of what they're getting at. But maybe you could argue that's a little lazy on my part because instead of trying to think it through myself, I'm just kind of jumping to like them explaining the book exactly. to an interviewer. That's very millennial of you, Tim. Like, yeah, Come absolutely, on, absolutely. Okay, boomer. you, you want to know exactly what. You want it told to you explicitly what you should think about this book. What was the author trying to do? And I, and I, it, it, I don't mean it's a bad thing, Tim. I really don't. I actually like your thoroughness because that means I don't have to look up anything coming into these talks. But, You're the lazy one. <laughs> okay, but ahead. I form my own opinions. I don't. <laughs> I don't just. <laughs> I just don't regurgitate what I heard on. I have my so, own opinions. I don't, Tim. I know. I'm just teasing. You know, it's all a matter of preference. The author's intent is important. It shouldn't validate or invalidate a reader's experience. That's well said. There we go. I resent you for saying my opinion was just millennial, but you wrapped it up nicely. Um, Okay, so if you were to give this author your opinion about this book as a whole, and maybe if he's, because he's planning to write like future books, right? Oh. Um, Yeah, he mentioned that in an interview. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, Will he stick to this kind of genre? Like, what do you think, in your opinion, he, mm. he might want to think about changing? Maybe focus on a setting in, in the present and work on telling a story in the present. 
because I feel like the reason I liked this book was because of the world building and the creative way of using articles and you know news historical artifacts from the time. But I'd be curious to see his take on maybe a present story. You know, if maybe he wouldn't be as good. You know, maybe, but that's an interesting. Yeah. So if he were listening to this, you'd say maybe not so much further in the future, but try to write something closer to today. Yeah, because I mean, it sounds like he has a wealth of um, firsthand experience. Yeah, and all the like future stuff could might be a distraction to some degree. Like it's interesting to think about mm-hmm. climate change, biological oh, warfare. Yeah. I but, thought like, I found this fascinating. Yeah, but but yeah, but so some, yeah, you yeah. might lose a little bit about that. Would, do you have any comments for the author? Just to sum up, I think I'd say like he maybe could uh, develop characters a little more, make it a little more engaging, a little less depressing, and uh, that's the main thing I would say. But it okay. is creative, so yeah. I'll give him that. All my quotes are like in the first third of the book because that's the part I like the most. So this is about they're on a bus. Her father dies, and then Sarat and her siblings and mom are on a bus going to the refugee camp. Slowly, the bus moved along the river, traversing the last shredded remnants of lower Louisiana. Here was where the water finally won. For decades, the governments of the state and the country spent billions trying to save lower Louisiana from the encroaching seas, building hundreds of miles of seawalls, levees, raised causeways, and even, toward the end, floating towns. It was still early days then, and the oceans had not yet devoured the optimistic notion that with Enough concrete and dirt and pride and money, the low country could be saved. Hmm. So I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective on how in the future where New Orleans is underwater and half of Louisiana is, they look back at our time right now as like kind of silly and frivolous because like whoever thought this could, we can maintain this, mm-hmm. this uh, city called New Orleans. And I mean, it's kind of unfortunately true that it's kind of protected by a lot of levees and dams and whatnot. Ah, this is my last one. Don't worry, Tim. <laughs> and so this is about, um, I think this is a good message for the, the, of the book itself, that war and extremism can happen anywhere given the right circumstances. The misery of war represented the world's only truly universal language. Its native speakers occupied different ends of the worlds, and the prayers they recited were not the same, and the empty superstitions to which they clung so dearly were not the same, and yet they were. War broke them the same way, made them scared and angry and vengeful the same way. In times of peace and good fortune, they were nothing alike, but stripped of these things, they were kin. The universal slogan of war, she'd learned, was simple. If it had been you, you'd have been no different. I think I remember him saying in in one of the interviews that revenge. He was trying to say how like, or show how revenge is this universal thing mm-hmm. that like, given the things that she went through, Sarat, mm-hmm. um, that her actions kind of were not saying justified, but like they made sense based on what she experienced. Right, and I think that's the unfortunate takeaway of this story. So rating rating time. Yes, you want me to go first because you never want. I'll go first. You want to go first? Three. Three? Mm-hmm. I'm giving it a five. What? Yes. This is self-selection bias. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, it might be, but, you know... You, this is the you, biggest you, gap. I, you have to know yourself, right? Oh, my God. And I know that I love dystopian future books. So, this was right up my alley. I read it so fast. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not perfect, 
but the world he created and the whole, I mean, like, that's just it. Like, Surratt, I could take or leave, you know, but the fact of the water levels rising, moving the, the capital to Columbus, the, the South, we, you know, rebelling and, and trying to fight another war. And then, like, even things about the Arabian uh, Empire now. I, lo- I mean, like, everything about this world I loved. And I just thought everything that he told and, and, and um, explained about this world he, he thought about in the future was spot on. I, if this were a movie, would you like to go see it? It is a total kind of like That's why it's never going to be a movie. Like The Road? Oh, yeah. The Road didn't was, was made into a movie. The Road huh? was just like set in the future, but super dark the whole way through. Yeah. It just got darker and darker. Yeah. <laughs> did you read The Road? I did read The Road. What did you think? Well, Cormac McCarthy is someone I'd say who like yeah. leaves things more ambiguous. Yes. Which we we read his other book. What was it? Oh, God. Blood Meridian? Blood Meridian, oh. which was too far in that direction. But I think The Road was just enough in that direction oh. that... um. I liked it. Yeah. I thought it was okay. You just yeah. thought The Road was okay? Yeah. You like this book better than The Road? Yeah. I did. That's okay. We can have different oh. tastes. Yeah, absolutely. I can have a good taste. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim. Yeah. All right. All right, What's so what are we reading next? Uh, What are we reading next? On the Road? Yeah. By Jack Kerouac? Yeah. This baby boomer um, Bible you're right <laughs> yeah pretty much have you started it yet i have not no i, I remember starting trying to start it a long time ago and couldn't get into it okay. so maybe well now you're now. forcing yourself to read it now yeah Good it's luck an important piece of fiction yeah we'll see have you read it you haven't read it before no i have not well okay. that's no i would have told you that but no i started it already okay so i'm looking forward to talk discussing that with you but hey good to be back glad we read a novel and um good talk yeah all right until next time what's our website oh crap that's right go to two guys one book.com is it the number two or is it spelled out no it's spelled out all words is there a comma because i know there's no a comma okay yeah just checking just two guys one book all lowercase all spelled out dot com and then you can comment if and... you go to an uppercase it'll still go there i know but like... <laughs> anyway two guys one book. talk down to our fans. go there and until next time <laughs> keep reading keep reading Non-dystopian fiction.